0: And welcome to the Left Up Larry podcast. I'm Greg Checkland and I'll be joined alongside Ewan Chapman. This week we're going to be interviewing Nick John Griffin, who is the head coach at Heart of England Boxing Club. We'll be getting an insight into his career as a boxing coach and also get his opinion on what it's been like to work with some of the best boxers in the world.
1: Yeah, so this week we're interviewing Nick John Griffin. Um actually my my boxing coach. He's been my boxing coach since I was eleven years old. I've had the pleasure of knowing him. Um he's always been a bit of a of an enigma um science teacher, melodeon player, uh, dirt bike racer, um sea shanty lover, so he's got he's got plenty of um of rings to his belt, so uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's really interesting. The amount of time I've got to spend with him in the past, and you know, his his slight bits of stories. So it's interesting to get, um, you know, the 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 full stories to some of them. So
0: yeah, and of course he's uh, he's worked with some of the the best boxers in the world. So you know, the likes of Tyson Fury, Amir Khan, Billy Joe Saunders, Ewan Chapman. Uh, yeah, Ewan Chapman as well, of course. Um, and so yeah, it's uh, really interesting to sort of hear about some of his stories and, and, um, and listen to some of the things he's got to say about the state of boxing now and, and how it was in the past. So yeah, let's get started.
1: Well, I guess the first thing to ask is um, like how long you've been involved in boxing? How did you get into boxing? I started
2: boxing when I was about 20. Believe it or not, I came into the sport to get fit for another sport. Came into the sport to get fit for motorcycle grass track racing, um, and went to get physically stronger because they're, they're beasts, 500cc motorbikes to wrestle around the track. So went to a boxing club, did get fitter, did get stronger. It improved my racing um but eventually the boxing kind of took over from the racing although i still do race occasionally and i still have got the bikes ready to get out the garage where i want to so yeah it was to get fit for the motorcycle sport and uh the boxing kind of took over i found i enjoyed it and gave it a go for a couple of three years
1: which was your favorite then which did you prefer out of the two was it the boxing that became the, the new love? I think
2: when you're doing boxing, you love boxing the most, and when you're doing motorcycle racing, you'd love motorcycle racing the most. you, you switch almost personality as you yeah. switch sports. So I, w- I wouldn't say I enjoyed one more than the other. I just love both sports and' still still deeply involved, obviously.
1: Yeah. well, how have you found that COVID's kind of affected your your love and your passion for well, boxing particularly, um, obviously you've been so heavily involved over so many years now. What's it like to have that kind of time off and to reflect on on, uh, on, on how the sport's going, how your relationship with boxing is going? I found aspects of life a little
2: bit boring without it because I've been, well, going to the gym, coaching the kids, going to tournaments for 30 years now. But it's a big part of your life that's suddenly taken away. But I have been pretty busy in the sport, even though the gym's been shut. I've delivered uh, one or two Zoom sessions. I've taken part in a few Zoom training sessions. So I've done the England boxing kick racism out of the sport, the England boxing. um, What else have I done? And I've done three or four courses with UK sport to improve my knowledge in sports psychology, nutrition. And in coach education, because I do deliver quite a lot of coach education courses.
1: Uh, I guess it's not the same as the kind of competitive side of, of boxing, though. Do you feel like that's the main thing that, that draws you to it?
2: Yeah, that's what it's all about, isn't it? It's, it's about competition. The training is great. The uh, education is great. But sport's about competition. Yeah. Same with the motorcycle racing. I can spend hours in the garage, but it's all about preparation for the competition. That's the only thing that matters, really. Yeah. Getting in the ring yeah. and uh, giving your best, and uh, shaking your opponent's hand when you whether you win or lose.
1: Yeah, and I, I think that's the thing. I mean, we're we're all sportsmen here, and you know we all enjoy that competition side to it. Um, I'd imagine that probably for myself, probably Greg as well, that we'd be looking at getting into more of the coaching now that we're getting a bit older. So, how do you find the you, you, the the coaching impacts on your your own competitive competitive nature? Um, do, you, do you still get that kind of that the same feelings you get from when you were competing to when you're coaching now?
2: If I'm honest, it's not quite as nerve wracking as you know yourself, when you're about to get into a boxing ring,
1: yeah.
2: it's, uh, it's a bit of an adrenaline rush. It really is back to me as a fire every time you walk into a, a boxing ring. It's hard, hard sport. And it's not quite so hard when you're the coach because you're not taking the punches. But you still get the butterflies, particularly if it's for a championship in the latter stages. You are really nervous. And in a sense, you take every punch that the kid takes that you're coaching. Yeah. Um, because you're desperate for them to do well, you, they become your personal friends and you want them to do well. So, yeah.
0: Is that what's kept coaching interesting for you across the years, now that you've been coaching for so many years? Um, you know, sort of feeling that excitement from, almost like the excitement through the kids that you've been coaching, is that sort of what's kept you invested in the sport for so long?
2: Yeah, very much so. I'm a, I'm a coach of competitive boxers. I've tried bits and pieces of personal training to get middle-aged people fit. I've coached boxing in schools when they're never going to going to compete, and you just don't get the same feedback, the same buzz. So no, I'm in the sport to to teach people how to box, and the other bits and pieces about yes, it improves self-discipline, yes, it improves confidence. They're byproducts which are very beneficial, but for me, yeah, I like people to come to the gym and learn how to box and then give it a go um i'm a bad loser yeah
1: I, I can vouch for that
2: i'm a really bad loser because i take it so seriously and
1: oh i guess it's not a bad thing it's probably something that we all have
2: yeah if you if you if you accept losing easily you're probably in the wrong industry sports not you the right industry for you but in boxing in particular it kind of hurts when you lose it's no fun at all <laughs> So i'm a bad loser which is probably one of the things i think that makes me a decent coach yeah.
1: do you not find that harder though when you're not able to well not able to be in that ring for someone you know it's more just having to accept what what a boxer's doing in there there's only a certain amount you can you can do to impact them
2: one of the most frustrating things about being a coach is that you can see the potential in people that they can't see in themselves they don't know how far they can go, but I've seen people with less talent go a lot further. So, yeah, it's frustrating that you can't um, get into their head so they can begin to realise the potential they've got. Do you,
1: do you not find, though, I feel like that's the thing as I've grown up, is kind of you, you begin, begin to understand that as you get older. Obviously, with boxing, a lot of good boxers start from such a young age. Um And when when you're at 13 14 it's a lot harder to to convince yourself of how important it is and how good it will be for you as opposed to when you get a bit older
2: for kids it's about fun and so it should be to some extent success breeds success and the ones that do well tend to stick with it but self-belief a lot of people really do find it difficult to to develop. They can't see themselves in the way that other people see them. They just see themselves as being second rate, when actually they are so much potential. I remember when you boxed as a kid. I think you won five or six on the spin, but then you just disappeared, didn't you?
1: Yeah, and that that was a thing. It was it was the mental side of it for me more than anything else. It was. You know, why? Why do I need this? Why am I putting myself through this each time? And yeah. and that's the thing. Looking at it now, as now I'm older and I can reflect on it and say how stupid I was to to waste that time. But I mean, I'm just thankful that I, you know, I'm still fit, I'm still healthy, and I can come back yeah. to it now and say that you know I still I've, I feel like I've still got something left left in me now. Yeah, as I say, when I sleep, Whereas I think a lot of people don't realise that. No.
2: I saw you as a kid and you got such perfect judgment of distance that if that could have been worked on for another four or five years as a junior, you might well have been going to the Olympics this year. But you couldn't see that and you can't get people to see it. It only comes with uh, years of experience and seeing themselves in other walks of life.
0: I I think, yeah, as an an outsider as well, it seems like – when you're boxing in the ring, you're it's one of the only sports where you're just so exposed, like for everybody to see. I mean, I did like I've done a few uh, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu tournaments um over the past few years and it's like unlike any sort of sport that you do, um, especially like team sports where you can sort of hide and you know, you can sort of go unnoticed. Whereas boxing, you know, if you're not there 100%, 100% invested at, at all times in the ring you just get so exposed and I think the thought of that I, I imagine would be absolutely terrifying particularly in boxing where the sort of result of, of not focusing or not believing yourself can be so like catastrophic um, that I can yeah I can fully understand like how difficult that is mentally to, to have to go
2: through Oh yes, it's it's a super tough sport, and it's it's not a sport for the majority. It never has been, and it never will be. It's it's for a small minority that have got physical, mental toughness, and have got something in them that just wants to make them fight. And most people haven't got that. Yeah, you you travel away even in a small amateur show, and there's 300 people there, and 298 are screaming for your blood, and they're drunk as well. There's only your coach and your dad that are cheering you
1: on—they're <laughs> the toughest ones. They are the toughest ones. But I think that's what—that's why boxers get so much ad- admiration. I mean, at all levels, at amateur and at professional, and even now with white collar, which obviously isn't the same, but it's—it's it's just that you know, people having that kind of that that dog in them to go and get in the ring is something that I think everyone aspires to have and yeah not not a lot of people actually have it
2: anyone can fight when they're in their hot blood they've lost their temper but to fight when you're in cold blood and you calm is a it's a special thing that most people will never grasp let alone be able to do
0: and I think your ability to think rationally and still hold your technique um, in your mind in the heat of that moment I imagine is something which is really really difficult and I think particularly when I look at somebody like I don't know Canelo at the moment you just look at him in there and he just looks so relaxed so comfortable and he just believes in his own technique so much Um, and I think that's one of the things that sort of sets him apart and I imagine sets a lot of boxers apart is their ability to sort of be calm and rely on their technique and yeah believe in
2: themselves. Most novice boxers never get past the stage where they become self-aware of what they're doing in the ring they're doing on autopilot they're doing it based on the moves that they've done in training and they're doing it within the rules of the sport but actually they're fighting um and they're exhausted after one minute because the adrenaline levels are so high the effort's so great they're not thinking about what they're doing they're not reacting to an opponent's punches, there are an opponent's moves, it's all on instinct. When you get past that and become self aware and become able to treat it as a sport and not a fight, that's when you become pretty good at it. And I guess that's much easier said than done though, isn't it really? That's the problem. (laughs) It takes time. You know, for the first the first ten times you're in there, you're very much on on just the fight instinct and by the time you did it fifty times, then it becomes a
1: bit bit easier. So, if we go back onto your own boxing career now, then Nick, um, I've, you know I've I've heard bits about your your illustrious past in the ring. Um, so, why don't you tell us a bit about what kind of boxer you were yourself? Uh, third rate, and even
2: that's probably an exaggeration in my South <laughs> um, Southpaw counter puncher six foot tall 11 stone so tall and skinny and rangy Southpaw. didn't like getting involved in a fight could hit with a left hand had one or two stoppages got stopped a few times and lost a lot on points and he had about 20 bouts and won less than half of them. so very very average but enjoyed the experience
1: Do you feel like I've, I've been knowing you and knowing the way that you coach boxing, it's often quite a a nice, rangy style of boxing. Do you think that's kind of reflective of how you were as a boxer yourself?
2: Very much so, and to some extent it's a fault. Each coach should coach a boxer to um, excel based on their physique, and I sometimes do over-coach Counterpunching, moving, some boxers should get stuck in and plant the feet a bit more, but it's not my style, it's not the style I like. Um, so I try and avoid it, but I do sometimes fall into the trap. but as you know at the moment in the in the gym we've got five or six different coaches on a good day, so all boxers can get input from uh, a range of coaches that themselves had a range of styles when they were competing. Your dad, for instance, he was a bit shorter and stockier than me, so I imagine his boxing style was a bit different as well.
1: <laughs> yeah, and, and that's the thing. I mean, I, I mean, looking at it and trying to imagine how it must be, I imagine that, that all coaches must try and, and take their own style and put it into their own style of coaching. So, I mean, it, it makes sense that your coaching would reflect how you were as a boxer. And I, I, from what I imagine from my dad, his coaching probably is suited to how he was as a boxer, a bit more sand and and trade it
2: is to some extent automatic and but the the good coach should be the what we describe as the chameleon coach so you describe you, you change your approach you change your attitude you change how you coach and what you coach to meet your audience and if i've got someone who's five foot tall and 15 stone it's not really much point in me teaching them how to be a long-range boxer, is there?
1: Well, you say that, but we've seen a few of them in the gym uh, that have been quite good boxers.
2: I can well, think of, of
1: Dan Smith as an example of that. You know, sure, but a lovely boxer.
2: Yeah, is that my fault? <laughs> Should I have taught him to be a fighter?
1: And of course,
2: sometimes the, the kid's own nature has a big effect on their style as well. When you were a kid, for instance, you were very much the counterpuncher and the mover, but as an adult, you are more of a get-stuck-in and throw some heavy
1: shots, aren't you? Well, I think I've got a bit of both. I've got got a bit of both. Um, So
2: how did you get into coaching then? I used to box for a club that was called the Venture Boxing Club, and it was based at Ashby Road Sports Club in Inkling. And with hindsight, the guy who was coaching it was pretty clueless. But of course, you don't realise that when you're just a boxer. And he actually turned professional, took two or three boxers professional. So it left a, a void, really. And I suppose ultimately I either started coaching or the club shut down. So I started coaching. Did my level one coaching course in 1990, I think. Level two in 92. Level three in ninety-five and level four in
1: ninety-eight, I think. I mean how high in England boxing, how high do the um levels go? Is level four the maximum? Yeah, it stops at four. So what 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 um what does that put you as? What's your official title within England boxing as a coach? A level four coach.
2: Yeah.
1: No no Just more not nothing more than that. Master sensei?
2: <laughs> Afraid not. Um <laughs> <laughs> level four coach, why did I bother going through all the coaching badges purely to try and be a better coach? I think, what would you think of a boxer that says, no, I know it all, don't need to know, learn anything new. I've got the full package, so don't coach me anymore. You'd think, what an idiot, wouldn't you? Well, the same applies to a coach. A coach should aspire to improve constantly. So I did the coaching badges, level one, two, three, and four, and still try to improve time I get the opportunity. Um, I'm a member of the box gatherings so I'll often take part in zoom seminars with various speakers. Um, I'll access any training I can just to try and make myself that little bit better. If you can make yourself one percent better in nutrition, one percent better in technique, one percent better in uh, strength and conditioning, that all adds up and hopefully the those improvements can be bare fruit in your athletes so a few percent increases as a coach result in a few percent increases in the boxer and they do better
0: and, and you spoke uh spoke earlier nick about um some fighters that you saw come into the gym who were very talented um who would you say like sort of rank amongst the most talented boxers that you've had the opportunity to work with over the years?
2: Well, I have been heavily involved with the England team over the years. So I've worked with the likes of um, Amir Khan, David Hay, George Groves, James DeGale, a a plethora of top-level British boxers. But that's with a national squad, and you're only having a very limited input into those. Um, Tyson Fury used to come to the gym when he was about 16, 17, 18. He was clearly obviously talented, did a fair bit with Tyson. Um, and yeah, dozens of kids over the years that had lots of talent, but of course, like most kids, they reached 17 or 18 and called it a day because they discover women, they discover alcohol. and they, In a town like Hinkley, lots of them disappear to university because it's a nice middle-class town. We don't, we don't lose boxes to... To
1: knife crime and drug yeah. use them to well, lose them to university and high pressure jobs. <laughs> so, um, well, you you mentioned there Tyson Fury. Um, obviously, you got the the shout out in in his um, biography autobiography biography. Um, would, did you expect that? Was that did that come as a bit of a surprise? I, I mean, what was it exactly that he said that you were the first coach to say you'd be a world champion? Yeah. Um well he
2: was six foot six, six foot seven and still growing. At the time about sixteen stone. He could move his feet, he could keep his hands up and he'd he got fast reactions and he a natural athlete and a natural boxer. I didn't really need to coach him too much. It's more a case of training him. Which I think still the case. He needs someone to push him mm-hmm. hard and train him to get him fit. And you you just don't get people that size with that athletic ability. And as we know, since he got off the floor from uh, that shot from Wilder, he's got physical and mental toughness that are second to
1: none. So, yeah, you you could see it at a young age. He was always going to be a bit of a star. What what was he like in the gym in the early days? As like a personality, um, as a character. Was he always as self-assured and as loud? No. Very, I would say,
2: reserved, almost shy, quiet, respectful, thankful for what you did with him. What you see on the media now is very much a ticket-selling machine to make millions of pounds for him and his promoter. I don't think the personality that, that people see is his true personality. He's a much more quiet, reserved person than he appears on TV.
1: And what about his dad? Did you meet John Fury?
2: Yeah, his dad would always bring him down. Again, just came across as a real nice fella, very respectful for what you did for for his lad and never any problems at all. And yet again, he's got this reputation of being this really rough, tough man that's fighting every five minutes. We didn't see any of that. We just saw a a dad bringing his lad along
1: to the gym to to learn how to box and to be coached. Do Do you wish you'd have got longer with Tyson Fury? I mean, I mean, how, how much were you, were you seeing him at the time? Was it like a, a travelling basis? or
2: uh, The reason he came to us is because his cousin boxed for us, Philip Fiore, um, and he used to just come along and train with his cousin and liked it and so came down quite a bit. I, I would guess he came down sometimes twice a week, sometimes once a month, sometimes once a week for a year or two. Um, but he was quite quick. I got him his first two contests, I think, because I was helping him with his matchmaking. And uh, he took off quite quickly. And he, uh, he was in the uh, GB, sorry, the England team, not the GB team, by the time he was 18. At which point, you know, and you're living in Manchester, you're not driving now to Leicester twice a week when you're already training three days a week in Sheffield and two or three times in your own club in Manchester.
1: Did you see him in them contests that you'd organised for him? Yeah, one of them was at
2: Hinkley Football Club.
1: Oh, and how did that go? I think he won on points against
2: another big, strong kid when he was about 17. And you kind of hope they're going to turn up and they're a 17-year-old heavyweight and they're going to be five foot wide and five foot tall. But <laughs> no, this was another big one. There's a. It was a competitive contest, as I recall, but he yeah, he won it pretty straightforward.
1: No star quality there. Well, again, first bout,
2: he would be still at the fight or flight stage. Yeah, I guess. But he got through, he got through that quite quickly. And then we took him to uh, RAF's, RAF base, I think, to box an RAF boxer as well.
0: Yeah, and of course now, Nick, we're, well, hopefully going to get the uh, long-awaited fight between him and Auntie Joshua. Uh, it's something which we have uh, debated on this podcast before. Um, how do you see the fight going and i guess if you were in tyson's corner how would you advise him to to uh, to take this fight or how would you advise him to fight this fight
2: when you make predictions about heavyweight boxing you can often be made to look a fool afterwards can't you because they don't half it yeah um 18 stone men the pair of them now i think and when you get hit by a jab by an 18 stone athlete, it's like being whacked around the head with a telegraph pole. They down yeah. off it. So you can't make a rational prediction, I'm afraid. However, your best form guide is when they both boxed Klitschko. When Joshua boxed Klitschko, what happened? Klitschko got stopped. Klitschko, Klitschko got stopped in about eight rounds. It was a hard for competitive match and Klitschko was probably winning on points at the time. What happened when Fury boxed Klitschko? At the time, Klitschko was fresher and more confident as well. He completely and utterly outboxed him for 12 rounds. So there's your best form guide. How they both fared against Klitschko. So my money would be on Fury. I can't see I can't see Joshua catching up with him and I can't see Fury dropping up his toes and having a big scrap with this guy. I think Fury will win on points quite comfortably. But as I just said, if you if you make predictions on heavyweight boxing you can be made to look a fool.
0: And and do you think he will Um, stick with that style that he employed against Wilder then of just weighing in heavy and leaning on him and using his weight Um, or do you think he'll go back to his sort of being elusive
2: style? I think he'll go back to his boxing style Um, Joshua is improving but I don't rate him as the best uh, stylist and mover in world boxing
1: Mm -hmm.
2: he's decent and he can really hit so I wouldn't have thought that that Fury would drop off his toes and have a scrap with him, but you never know.
0: Yeah, and I guess um, with the Wilder fights for Fury, as sort of novice as uh, Wilder looks at times, I think that actually makes his shots a bit unpredictable, whereas I think Joshua can be a little bit predictable in the shots he throws, and I guess Fury, you know, you'd expect him to be able to see most of the shots that, uh, AJ is going to throw, so I guess that might give him a bit of an advantage in that sense.
2: Without doubt, Fury sees the shots coming. He's got great judgment of distance. He's got good reactions and perception. Um, he's a hell of a boxer. He's obviously people give him credit, but I think he's better than people give him credit for. I mean, his first bout with Joshua with um, Wilder. That was. They called it a draw, didn't they? That was absolutely ridiculous. Fury clearly won nine rounds. He lost one by the two points, and a couple of rounds were close. It was an absolutely shocking decision. It was a one-sided, easy point to win. But as we know, money talks in, money talks in boxing, and uh, you don't shoot the goose that lays the golden eggs. so they called it a draw
0: definitely and I think um, there's been a lot of controversy with scoring recently in boxing. Um, I guess how do you see this sort of improving in boxing? Because I guess for somebody who is an outsider, who um, isn't really into boxing as much and just sort of turns on the TV and they, they want to get into boxing and get interested, and then they're seeing a really sort of unfair result, I guess it can be quite off-putting for them. And, you know, we want to get more people interested in the sport. So I guess it's a pretty important thing to try and solve. And, you know, how do you think we sort of move forward in this sport with bulging?
2: I think you're flogging a dead horse. There have been bad judging decisions for the last 150 years in boxing and there will be for the next 150 years. And the key issue is this. He who pays the piper calls the tune. Who pays the referee? Who pays the judges? The promoter. So the promoter's fighter wins. That's the way it is. And if you don't, vote for the promoter's fighter. Next time there's a big show on and the judges are being paid 50,000 each, you won't be one of them. It's all about and the promoter's boxer will win unless it is completely and totally one-sided. And even then, they'll sometimes give it as a draw.
1: Nick, but we see the same issues in amateur boxing. and I mean, we could go and watch... Uh, a, a local amateur boxing show next week, and how many bad boxing decisions do we see on that? And surely they they can't be affected by the same things that they are in pro boxing. That that's a different issue. Now, in the
2: new season coming up, we will probably take part as a club in let's say fifty contests, and probably. 40% of those contests, we will win, and it's obvious we've won and we'll get the decision. And 40% of the contests, we will lose, and it's obvious that we lost them, we will lose the decision. About 20% will be close. And when they're close, you win some, you lose some. Um, you do get the odd shocker, but probably 19 out, times out of 20, the decision is right Allowing for the fact that when it's close, you win some, you lose some. Do you remember when your brother boxed up in Chesterfield? I don't know if he came or not.
1: Yes, for um, the uh, cruiserweight
2: bout. Yeah, no, 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 no. It was just club that we went up at late notice. I think the, we got a call on the day, I think. Anyway, he he bashed the kid up.
1: Oh, he gave him the standard.
2: I think there was three eight counts in it. Yeah, I remember that one. He only, he only won a split decision. So one judge thought he lost. Now, that judge couldn't possibly have been thinking, I was skew the scoring to my home boxer, because you can't do that unless another judge does it with you. There's only one possible reason for that, that decision by that judge, which is incompetence. And you will get the odd incompetent decision, but I think bent decisions in amateur boxing are pretty rare. Sometimes it's close and you think you won it, but you don't get it. Um, a lot of judges are involved because they love the sport, but they, in most cases, were never boxers and not coaches. They just uh, do a, a one-day judging course and uh, away they go.
1: Well, Obviously, now you're involved in well uh, delivering some of the the, the courses around um, coaching and around well i'm sure you're aware of what exactly um judges are looking for so so like what what are the specifics that a judge is looking for in a fight is 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 there an advantage to being on the front foot in a fight
2: what are you doing on Thursday night as a matter of interest i asked because a naive <laughs> referee is going to do a um, a Zoom session, and it's called "What a Judge is Looking For." Your, your dad did it a few weeks ago. We'll be rerunning it on Thursday. So it's how judges score it based on the modern scoring system. And in short, the answer is this: you count the punches landed by red. You count the punches landed by blue. The one that lands the most usually is the winner. But you do make some allowance for the power of the shot. For instance, which is better, two jabs or one backhand?
1: That's a bit subjective
2: now. But roughly speaking, two jabs and one backhand are equal. But if it was splitting hairs, you might say that two jabs are a fraction more difficult to score. So you give that box of credit. So you now do take into account the power of the shot, the difficulty of landing the shot. Whether the boxer is making the fight, as they say, going forward, working hard, throwing more shots, and then you might favour them slightly if the punches landed were equal. But yeah, seriously, if you're not doing anything, it's worth listening to that seminar.
1: Well, I I definitely would want to go on that. Um, So I just want to take you back a bit. Obviously, no, we've moved on quite, quite a bit following the tyson Fury discussion. You mentioned about some of the England tournaments that you were on. So tell us a bit about them, so tell us the, the, the best tournaments that you've been to, the kind of fights that you've seen there, the, the personalities you you've got to share that with.
2: Yeah, I worked with the national team from about 99 through to about 2010, so 10 or 12 years. And I went to about 14, I think I went to 14 multi-nations tournaments plus various what they call dual internationals which would be England v Germany or England v Scotland or whatever the case may be. Um, I tended to do more youth and junior tournaments than senior because as you know my trade is teaching so I tend to be perceived as being a better coach for the kids than the adults. Um, so I've done world juniors, European juniors, European youths, world youths and so on. Characters. Billy Joe Saunders was hard work. Wow. Um, I think he went to the European, <laughs> what a surprise. He went to the European juniors with Billy Joe and I think he lost early on and then you've got to sort of look after him for the next 10 days and you're in Turkey. Um. He just wants to do his own thing. But, of course, he's a, he's a junior, so you are responsible for him and for safeguarding reasons, you've got to make sure you know where he is at all times. And
0: How old was he then, Nick?
2: He'd be 16 or 17. Right. And uh, right. he hasn't really <laughs> Imagine what he was like then because now he's an adult and he's still problematic, I think you might say.
1: <laughs> you managed to keep a rein on him?
2: just about but i can't pretend we knew his whereabouts every moment of every day for the rest of the week i mean if you're if you're at the boxing hall with the next two or three performers and they're boxing on that day where's he and what do you do to control it (laughs) um i also have vivid memories of things like the old four nations which would be england ireland scotland and wales and uh, Being English coaches, we were obsessed with looking after the kids and making sure we knew where they all were at all times. Where's the Welsh, the Scots, and the Irish? What did their coaches do? They just went to the the pubs and got drunk and let their kids run wild. (laughs) Different coaches, even across uh, the British Isles. But yeah, as I say, I did about 14 uh, multinationals. Which sound very glamorous, but essentially you see the inside of a hotel and a big boxing hall Um, There are very few spectators there usually It's just mums and dads who have traveled from around the world and not many locals watching Um, You see some very strange judging at internationals If the Russians are there The Russians will probably win 10 of the 12 available gold medals Mm. A they're very good B, the judges are worried that if they don't vote for the Russian, they'll get shot in the head later. <laughs> <laughs> what a quote! <crime>. of <laughs> life in Eastern Europe. It's a the whole of society is just massively com- corrupt. Yeah. Uh,
0: so you can't guarantee that they're uh, fighting clean as well. I assume.
2: Oh no, the Russians have been doping for fifty odd years. It's not a modern thing. Um, the the racism you see in Eastern Europe again it just takes your breath away uh, you wouldn't it's like going back to England in 1950 or something terrible racism monkey chants when English black boxers are performing and so on it's, it's an interesting experience
1: um, when you go to a multi nations who who were some of the best performances you can remember um, um, European
2: juniors and the Junior Olympics, Amir Khan just stopped everybody Wow, That's when he was 16 just bashed everybody up really easily um, Junior Olympics he took an American that had something like 150 bouts and 140 again he stopped him in a couple of rounds um, a year later of course he won the uh, silver at the Was it the Beijing Olympics? I'm not sure. Um, So he was a superstar as an amateur. He hasn't come through as well as I would have expected as a senior. Obviously, he's done well for himself, but I thought he would be a uh, Mayweather sort of performer.
1: What do you think that is?
2: Uh, It's because I was no longer coaching him at all. (laughs) pro boxing is different isn't it three rounds um very different he's he was he was a mover he'd move out move in hit hard get out again he was always in and out in and out didn't hang around to take shots well if you're doing 12 threes you can't be on your toes moving in and out for 12 rounds because no one could it just takes up too much energy And I think he also, I suspect he's been damaged by some of the hard shots he's taken early in his career. You remember a fella called, I think it was Breedis Prescott, that knocked him cold and something like his fifth pro fight or something. And I don't think you ever fully recover from bad knockouts like that.
0: I guess psychologically as well, the effect that that has. um, If you're getting knocked out in your fifth pro fight, um, yeah, I, I think that's something that's always in the back of your mind for the rest of your career, isn't it, really?
2: Definitely. Don't get me wrong, he's a multimillionaire and he's won a world title, so he's not done too badly for himself. But as I say, I thought he would be like Mayweather in Invincible.
1: I guess he could have, if he'd have stuck around in amateur boxing where it's more suited to him, like I guess a lot of the, the Cubans do, um, potentially one of the greatest amateur boxers we could have ever seen
2: yeah without doubt he'd have probably gone on to win a couple of gold medals if he'd stuck with it but as a good class amateur you can earn 50 grand a year and if you're on question of sport and strictly come dancing and you've got good sponsors you might make quarter of a million a year but if you want to make millions and millions you've got to go pro, haven't you?
1: yeah
2: on the other hand as you know most pro boxers what do they actually earn Next to nothing. Three or four bouts a year and a thousand pound a bout if they're lucky.
1: Yeah. Well, I guess have you seen have you seen many of them then where it's been an amateur talent and they've been a, a a class amateur. Well, I assume you probably have seen many of the in these cases, but and they've turned professional and you know they've not they've not had the same success. Um anyone particularly that you can remember f- thinking at the time that they'd have been very successful.
2: A fella came out of Coventry called Errol Christie. And Errol Christie was multi-titled junior schoolboy, youth, senior ABA champion, England rep dozens of times. He was a superstar. Turned proud about 18 and uh, rapidly disappeared after a, a year or two. Possibly the most talented I've seen. Brilliant boxer. Yeah, and the world is is littered with examples
1: like that, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Well, that's the thing. I, I mean, I've, it's a shame that it's not. And I say this to so many people that aren't involved in boxing and don't understand that you know it's not always the the best boxers that go on and become the best pros. It's it depends on how much backing you have and how much how much money you can draw. It's it's a shame, really, because there's some amazing boxers that just can't get a look in it, pro.
2: Neil Linford, who came out of Leicester and he was a European, uh, I think he was a bronze medalist, at the European juniors, ABA quarterfinalist, turned pro at about 21. And uh, he's with a small-time promoter. He's not a big name. He's not in, a, in the London set. And uh, basically retired while still a very good performer because he just couldn't make any money at it. You've got to be the right promoter, or you've got to be a massive ticket seller. Or, as you know, you've got to be willing to get bashed up once a week for a thousand quid as the
1: journeyman. That's a hard way of life, that is. I'd say for any aspiring boxers, and I'm sure there's a lot out there that that want to start boxing, but and but the, the the nerves that surround boxing and um you know, not wanting to. I hear so many times when I say to people about boxing, oh, I don't, I don't want to be here. What What advice would you give to to young people that would consider getting into boxing or just on the verge of of getting into boxing?
2: I think boxing is a sport that needs to be taken step by step, and you need a coaching structure and a club that will deliver that to you step by step. Start by getting fit. Learn some skills. In your club, you should be doing technique sparring. When you've got decent technique, then you can move on to condition sparring. When your condition sparring is looking about right, then you move on to an open sparring in your club. Once you've done that, make sure your coaches take you around to other clubs to experience uh, sparring with other club boxers. If you're a junior in particular, make sure that you start with skills belt. Step by step, building it up. I've seen too many boxers do too much too soon and quit the sport quite early. Learn it slowly, learn it properly, develop step by step. Don't think you're going to be a world champion in 12 months, you're not. It'll take 10 or 12 years to make a world champion. Remember it's tough. Remember it is demanding. Remember it takes commitment. Without those toughness commitment, you're going nowhere anyway. Stick to playing football or some other easier sport, get the right club, get the right coach, build on it step-by-step step
1: and enjoy it. What, what about an, one of those eight-week eight eight courses to fight? Um,
2: they are a fantastic money spinner for the people that organise them. You get your eight free weeks of training, which is a joke. It's not training. It's just a farcical um, hit a punch bag and hope for the best scenario. Um, you'll then sell 500 quid worth of tickets for the promoter. They'll give 1% of it to a charity and then pretend it's all going to a charity. You're probably going to fight someone that is just a coke up steroid head. Um, so if you, want to, if you want to do boxing, do it properly. Join an England boxing, boxing club, but learn how to box properly, do it properly. And, uh, yeah, stay away from the white-collar nonsense would be my advice.
1: <laughs> no, clearly not a fan of white-collar.
2: <laughs> it's farcical, isn't it? Appallingly low standard. Several people die in it every year, normally because the drugs they're taking interfere with the heart, coupled with the adrenaline.
1: Yeah, awful. Stay away from it. Learn how to do it properly the the blaringly obvious question is are the chapman brothers the the best boxers you've ever had in in the boxing gym
2: obviously yes and number one at the top of the tree has to be ewan um a, a fair way down the pecking order you would find ross and then the other boxers down the other floor
1: without wow. no. well I, I, it was it was obvious but i just wanted to get it uh confirm yes uh, you're right in your good
0: <laughs> thank you very much for listening to the left up larry podcast we'll be trying to put a podcast out every single week i hope you have a great day